gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You know all the stuff I usually say around then. I want to get straight to this. Um, I've been looking for, uh, I've been trying to get this guy on this podcast for a very long time, um, which is strange given that he is, um, he, he covers a lot of other boxes on the grid than I do. He's uh, uh, a very liberal, atheist, secular Jewish guy from Canada of all places. Um, but he is also arguably my favorite psychologist and I've read, uh, two of his books and chunks of his other stuff. And, um, he was formerly at Yale, but he, he, he left that new Haven trade school to go, uh, to the great frozen North to chop wood or something. And of course I'm referring to Paul Bloom, who has a wonderful, new book out which i am uh making my way through this week uh called the sweet spot the pleasures of suffering and the search for meaning paul bloom welcome to the remnant thanks for having me here it's nice to see you again it's great to see you um last time i saw you was at the owl in new haven where we had a cigar or two a wonderful cigar bar in new haven i think the only one in connecticut and uh one of the reasons I'm sad to leave New Haven is I really missed Owl Shop. Yeah, they um, I went there again. I think on that same trip with kids from uh, the Yale Political Union who had invited me. Um, I believe it was the Party of the Right, and um, they told me that they get they get undercover cops there all the time, <laughs> but not for the booze. It's to get not for finding underage drinking. It's for finding underage smoking, which is some kind of commentary on where we are. It says it says something about it, which is you in that place more than any other place in New Haven. You see a, a cross section of humanity. You see you see you know law students and the party of the right and you know construction workers all with a shared addiction that that cuts across all of humanity. And uh, it, it's it's a great place to be. Yeah, no, my, my I, I actually wrote a piece about that uh, something along the line. I think it was called De Tocqueville at the Tobacconist or something because. My cigar shop in D.C. has got white shoe, very expensive, serious lawyers, and it's got construction workers, and it's got um, retirees, and it's got a lot of black uh, D.C. cops, and um, just this really weird cross section. And one of the, one of the things you really pick up is how much the one of the last lingua francas in American life that can connect different people together is talking about sports. Um, because without it, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, there's not, and like people try to avoid talking about politics unless it's a certain group or whatever, but like you just listen to these people and it's, it's, it's like Yiddish for, you know, Jews from a thousand miles apart in Europe. You know, it's the one thing they can all speak to each other in. It's really kind of interesting. Um, but that's a topic for another time. Um, um, as listeners know, my favorite question to ask authors when they come on the show is because it's my favorite question to get asked when I'm on a book tour is what's your book about? So what's your book about? Um, it's about suffering. It's about, um, about chosen suffering, how chosen suffering can um, give us pleasure and, um, how it could give life meaning. And, um, I started just interested in pleasure. I started, 
um, really interested in puzzles, like why do we like, you know, hot baths and spicy foods and scary movies? Why do we like to inflict anguish and sometimes physical pain on ourselves? It's going to call it the pleasures of suffering. And as I started to write it, I became more and more interested in suffering that doesn't give us pleasure, but gives us meaning and purpose. And then the book got a lot bigger and the title changed. And, and that's what it's about. Um, yeah, so I, mean, I, I, I know basically where you come down on, on well, directionally, I know where you come down on this question from, from reading in the book, but this quest for meaning thing is such, it's almost, it's an obsession on the left and the right these days as you, you sort of go through a lot of the people who've written about this, I, including myself, I plead guilty. Um, um, why don't you give sort of as a, as a psychologist, you know, and also in the context of the book, what do you mean by the search for meaning or what do we mean by the search for meaning? No, it, 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 it's an awful kind of crunchy phrase that people use to mean whatever they want to mean. And in fact, a lot of my book is an argument against hedonism, against sort of a simple minded hedonism. But I got to say, as I was writing the book, I ended up in arguing with some hedonists I know. And these arguments were really valuable for me because they'd say, well, meaning, that's a bunch of crap. Like people say they want meaning, they just want to be happy defend yourself. And I found that useful. Um, what I mean by meaning, and I think what most people mean by meaning when they sort of think about it, concerns pursuits that are, um, that take a lot of time, that are seen as worthwhile, that affect other people, that make a difference in the world, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. They could tell a story about, and that involve a lot of work and a lot of effort. And in fact, the, the sort of effort, work, effort, pain, disappointment is, is sort of how I connect suffering and meaning. So some examples are, you know, having children. That's, that's a, a perfect example of a meaningful activity. It's often not that much fun. Um, training for a marathon, climbing Mount Everest, starting a business, um, any sort of difficult lifelong project. And what these things have in common is they aren't necessarily fun. I mean, you know, you, you, you write a lot of books. Writing a book is a good example of a meaningful project. When you're sitting down to write a book, if you're anything like me, you know, e email is a lot more fun. Twitter's a lot more fun. There's so many things you'd rather be doing. But Writing books is terrible. Having written books is kind of cool. Exactly. And, and a lot of meaningful pursuits, I think, have that flavor, which is, you know, you take a very, very long hike or a long run. And during it, if you could snap your fingers and be back, you know, on your sofa watching Netflix, you would. But afterwards, you feel, hey... I'm glad I did it. It was satisfying. It was worthwhile. And so meaningful pursuits, as I'm characterizing, I think most people characterize it, refer to that sort of thing. There's nothing necessarily spiritual about it or mystical. I'm not talking about a meaning of life. I'm just talking about, about, you know, these pursuits we engage in that seem to sort of scratch a deeper itch than pleasure. Is it, so I, is it, is it, I hate to say this way, this way, is it meaningfully different then like these concepts of which I talk about, I've talked about a lot, um, partly influenced by Arthur books and a lot of people who are influenced him, but earn success, right? There's, there's the, the, the struggle to do something attaches to you personally, if you succeed at it, where you are and, um, and it is validated by others in a way that, um, gives you a sense of status and, and, and self-worth because you've, you've earned the success rather than just inherited it or, or lucked into it. Is it a meaningfully different thing than that? Or is it, is it really just sort of a different facet of the sort of same thing? It's pretty much the same. 
And, and it's important because, you know, I, I do my spiel and I, I, I wrote something for the Wall Street Journal that was a summary of the book. And I got a very angry email from somebody saying, I live with chronic pain. Are you telling me this is good? You know, screw you. You don't know anything. And, and it's a common misinterpretation, but unchosen suffering, unchosen difficulty is very different because it's unearned. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about fasting and he says, you know, if you, if you, um, if you fast, you could get a sense of pride about this and satisfaction and mastery. It's, it's earned. He's actually disapproving of this to some extent, but he says you can get that. But if you're, if you're not eating because, you know, you don't have money to buy food or someone stole your food or you're trapped in a cell, that's just terrible. That's just awful. <laughs> and we could try to extract meaning from it. And a lot of, I think, the project of religion is distracting meaning from bad stuff that happens to us. But that's much more difficult because at some level, you know, I didn't do that. There's a big difference between me giving a lot of money to a beggar and having a beggar steal it from me. In both cases, I don't have the money anymore, but there's a difference between choice and, and something that's unchosen. Um, all right, so since you stay and define your terms realm for just a second longer, uh, in the beginning of the book, you, have this, you, you compare these quotes with, between Jordan Peterson and is it Slava Zizek? <laughs> uh, that's better and better than I would do. Um, uh, but I'll, we'll put it in the show notes. It, it, I, I posted this on Twitter like a decade ago. I wanted for a speech to quote Zizek, we'll just call him that, uh, in part because he's one of the foremost champions of the movie They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper as the uh, premier example of Marxist art in, in the 20th century or something. And All I remember about that is Kick-Ass and Chew Bubblegum. That's right. Yeah, this is the, I came here today to do two things, Kick-Ass yeah, and Chew yeah. Bubblegum, and I'm all out of gum. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a ridiculous contention, although it's it kind of makes sense if you follow along. Anyway, but... I looked, I Googled, how do you pronounce his name? And the first result is this, you know, major pronunciation guide um, that gets it so, like, I'm not sure how to pronounce it right. I am sure this is wrong. It's some artificial intelligence basically sounds like someone put razor blades and marbles in their mouth and just shouted periwinkle over and over. It's bizarre. <laughs> um, but anyway, you quote them both. You say you point out, and again, this sort of gets to the thing about meaning is, is that you quote them both, who both say the secret to life is essentially a life of struggle. And, and, but does struggle and pain, I mean, are struggle and pain really the sort of same thing? I mean, is it, are you really just talking about you get reward from doing things that are hard? Um, less than, you know, things that actually hurt you. I'm, I'm interested in the appeal of suffering and, and I have sort of a, a big tent for suffering. So it includes actual physical pain, but it also includes emotional pain, stress, anxiety, worry, failure, humiliation. Um, basically I'm kind of interested in why are things which seem almost by definition bad? When do they become good? And so, you know, BDSM, uh, you know, sadomasochistic sex poses a puzzle because, you know, ouch, it seems to hurt. Why do we want it? And, um, and you know, in some ways doing things like training for a marathon poses this, the same puzzle. One case it's, it, and, and also I'm seeing a, a, a horror movie that makes you flinch and, and, and gives you nightmares. So I'm just interested in bad stuff. And I think physical pain and, and anxiety and all those other things, they're different. They, and sometimes you need different explanations, but I'm interested in what they have in common here. 
All right, so why do why why are and we'll keep this as tasteful as we can. We'll keep the nudity integral to the plot. But how, why are people into uh, sadomasochism? You know, like what's your explanation? Right. So why does pain sometimes give us pleasure? And and um, there there's a host of different theories, and I think some of them um, they're just compatible. So I think in the case of of sadomasochism, it falls into the same category, strangely enough, as intense exercise. Um, which is certain being engaged with pain. And, and again, you have to have control over it. It takes you out of yourself. It takes you out of your head. Um, you know, uh, keeping away. Yeah, I, I give an example in my book of, of um, starting Brazilian jiu-jitsu and sparring for the first time. And, you know, sparring with a guy who's much younger than me, much stronger than me, much better than me. And I realized afterwards that for the two or so minutes we did this, I was thinking of nothing else. I wasn't thinking about, like, oh, I hope my book sells well. And <laughs> that was a stupid thing I said last Tuesday. And, and, you know, and I think I owe somebody money, but I can't remember who. It wasn't, not that, and, and also like, maybe I should, maybe I'm a failure in all sorts of ways. I wasn't thinking of any of that. And pain, a sharp jolt of pain, pain and, 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 and things related to pain have a wonderful distracting power. So, where do you put like endorphin addiction into this equation? I mean, is, is that not part of it too? It, it, it is part of it. And in fact, um, you know, the psychological measure called sensation seeking, which is, you know, endorphin addiction, you like the thrill, um, is often, um, is often associated with the choice to do certain activities. And, and the thing to, the way to think about this is emotions like fear and anger aren't necessarily bad. Sometimes they could be a lot of fun. They get the heart racing, they're exciting, they, they twist your mind in certain ways. The bad thing about a lot of frightening experiences, there's something to be afraid of. You know, So if a rabid dog is chasing me, I'm terrified. But the badness of it isn't being afraid. The badness of it is getting bitten by a rabid dog. So you know, Halloween's coming, you go to a haunted house and it's the right sort of haunted house, it'll, it'll really scare you. But that's fun because you know at some level you're not going to get and so we enjoy playing with emotions, even negative emotions. Um, anger could really feel good. Even sadness can feel good, you know, the idea of sort of sulking. So I think that that's one part of the story for why, how pain can give you pleasure. Another part, just to get us in, is contrast. So, um, you know, you're, you're, why do we eat spicy foods? And one answer is because, you know, afterwards you drink some beer and it feels so great, the contrast. A hot bath feels wonderful when it's over. Even, um, it's like the Swedes are rolling the snow and then get back in the hot tub, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was once, I actually did that in Finland once a sauna and you, you just roast your whole body until you feel your innards are cooking and you're, you're a goner. Then you dive into a freezing cold lake and <laughs> then you do it over and over again until you just pass out. And then, and then people serve you sausages and beer and, and, you know, I'm going to move to Finland and do that every day and that'll be a good life. <laughs> um, so, I mean, but to be more constructive about this, how do you, um, how do you translate this into a, a way to live an actual, to find the sweet spot? How do you actually, you know, I mean, like tell, you can't tell people, and first of all, we should say, right, there's a, I mean, I, I, I know you acknowledge this, but there's a big difference between eating spicy food and then quenching your thirst with a beer or getting out of the sauna and into the snow or whatever and living a meaningful life. One can be 
that the the first part is perfectly consistent with a kind of hedonism, right? Yes, that's it, right. It, it, that's it's right. not metaphorically related to like how you live a fulfilled, meaningful life where you you're, you're part you feel like you're made a real contribution, right? That's right. That's right. If someone's a pure hedonist, they could, you know, somehow read or borrow from a friend the first two chapters of my book where I talk about <laughs> pleasure and say, wow, I hadn't thought of doing that. And that seems like fun. But, but you're right. That the, the, the main focus of the book um, is looking at, at suffering as, as a source of meaning. And one argument I make is it's not that we're after suffering in and of itself. Nobody who starts to train for a marathon hopes to get blisters and to be exhausted and then maybe to fail. But if you didn't have that possibility, um, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth doing. And you know, it's not a it's not a self help book. It's not a how to book. But it makes a case for something, which is um, it comes under the awkward term of motivational pluralism, which is you ask a lot of people, "What do we want out of life?" And they tend to give you one word answers. And many people say pleasure. Um, those guys you were quoting, I think, say struggle. Um, some people say morality, some people say truth, some people say beauty and motivational pluralism says, you know, you're all right. We, we, we want many, many things. And then a good life is finding a balance between them. You know, as part of the argument for, um, for that happiness and meaning are different, I cite the set of studies looking at countries. And so you, yeah, I'm sure you know this, but the happiest countries tend to be wealthy good social support, reasonable economic freedom, nice places to live, you know, the, the, the New Zealands and Norways and Australias and so on. Um, but then studies have asked people, how much meaning do you have in your life? And the countries which have the most meaning tend to be poor. There's an inverse correlation with, with, with GDP, and it could be for different reasons. But, you know, you think about that and you say, well, I'd rather live in Australia than one of those more wretched countries and I think the answer to that is you don't have to choose between meaning and happiness and pleasure. You could kind of try to find a balance between all of them. So I mean, one of my standard riffs about the earned success stuff is that, um, you know, you don't need to make a lot of money to have earned success. You can be a stay-at-home mom or dad, a baseball coach. You can be a priest, right? And the whole reason you have feelings of earned success is that people need you people like um um people will know when people would notice if you were gone and there are a lot of rich people who you know it's sort of the david brooks's stuff about eulogy versus resume all of these kinds of things um and i i kind of i i believe that pretty passionately as a matter of conviction but it does seem to me that like one possible reason why you would have more sense of meaning in poor countries is that the individual labor of the person is required to make the family get through the day, right? I mean, this is one of the, one of the reasons you get the atomization that we get is that it is possible to purchase goods and services that once you relied upon friends and family to help you provide. And if you, the poorer the country, the, there's a, the less of that is going on, less of that is outsourced, and more of that is happening in hearth and home. And so you're, you're, you feel like you're needed because you're, you are needed. Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. Um, there, there's, you know, there's a whole lot of bad things about, you know, living, living on sort of the edge where, where you're working each day 
is what your family needs to survive. And that's, you know, a terrible thing. But one benefit of it is it makes the work meaningful. You know, people count on you. And if you're, to some extent, very privileged and wealthy and, and protected f- from that, maybe you feel, maybe I'm not as of, u- as of much use. I mean, there are other explanations. One, one is religion. Poor countries are more religious. Uh, religion, I think, imbues life with more of a sense of meaning. Um, another's children. People in poor countries have more children. I think children are connected, maybe in part for reasons you're talking about, but seeming like worthwhile with meaning. But the general point is, is, is right. You, you look at um, jobs, and there's all these rankings of what jobs pay the most, but there was a big grant study, 2 million people, of what jobs have the most meaning. And it's just what you say. Uh, the, the job that tops out the most meaning is being a member of the clergy. Um, other jobs typically include educators and include, you know, doctors and people who do medical stuff. And, um, and some of these jobs actually are not high status. They're not well paid and they're really difficult, but you make a difference in people's lives. And I think that that's, that, 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 that is an important component of a meaningful project. Yeah. Cause I mean, th- you, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with the point you're making when you say they're not high status jobs, but they're high status to the people whose lives you affected. Right. I mean, like, like the, you know, that X number of the kids you taught are going to say one day, if they have a rich and fulfilling life, I owe it all to, you know, Mr. Anderson or, you know, Ms. Bloom or whatever. And that matters a lot to people because in real life, you know, strangers can't love you. Only people who know your name and your face and who you are can truly love you as a human being, right? I mean, what, 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 there's that number we're only wired to like know personally 150 people or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Rob and Dunbar's number that works. Yeah, Dunbar's we're, number, you know, right. Yeah. And then everything else, people become abstractions. And, you know, and you get real, the satisfying status is to be thought well of by the people who are within that Dunbar's number, I think, you know, but that's, that's not the way the culture is oriented these days where you're, number of followers is, is, is where you're supposed to get happiness from. Right. I think that that's, I think that that's right. I, I think that that's one powerful route to meaning. I think there are others. Um, I think something like climbing Mount Everest, people find a meaningful pursuit because it's given so much value within a community, within the world at large. I think it's incredibly stupid just personally, but you know, <laughs> well, stupid, and meaningful, stupid. <laughs> stupid and meaningful go in, in different directions. I am, um, my, uh, my younger son, I talk about in a book is, is, is a rock climber. And, um, and he always tells me about the adventures he wants to have. And, I, and it makes my stomach churn. And I say, you know, why don't you stay at home and be safe? And, you know, and, and, and I have some good arguments for why the risk of, of uh, climbing K2 or Everest just isn't worth it. But, but, you know, he's younger than me and, and he doesn't want to be safe. He wants to live a life of meaning and, and adventure. Sometimes, by the way, um, and you know, you and I could go back and forth on this because I'm not settled on this, but it could be a meaningful life, a life of a meaningful pursuit could be terrible. So, um, so Eichmann, you know, the designer, the final solution, uh, you could describe his work on mass extermination and everything as for him, very meaningful to seem to engross him and obsess him. It certainly affected a lot of people. It was a long-term project. And I think it's important to keep in mind that meaningful might not be the same as good. Right. Right. I, 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 that's a good point. I mean, I, I, in the last five years in where, where American politics has gone, I am 
I find myself constantly invoking Colonel Nicholson from Bridge of the River Kwai, who, you know, he's the Alec Guinness character, spoiler alert for everybody, um, who wants to show up the Jap, he's in a Japanese prison camp, and he wants to show up the Japanese about how superior the British are as a military and as an engineering force. And so they agree to build this bridge better than the Japanese could. Um, and it's only in the last minutes of the movie where he realizes that the reason why they want to build the bridge is to ship arms to kill British people. And he says, my God, what have I done? And he blows up the bridge. And the number of people on the American in American politics these days who are fully committed to meaningful stuff that I think is hot garbage and really bad um, is profound. And I, I see these Colonel Nicholson's and I just always think that maybe at some point they'll come to their senses and say, my God, what have I been doing? But a lot of them don't seem any closer to it. I'm not saying they're Eichmann's. I'm just using, you know, uh, you know, uh, Bridge on River Kwai as a, as a, as a analogy, but you know, yeah. But, and you could even take that further and maybe, uh, I'm not certain, but a politician or somebody who, who is, uh, engaged in politics, who has this as a deeply meaningful pursuit, there may be some reasons to be suspicious of such a person because, um, the pursuit of long-term goals sometimes gets in the way of practicality and gets in the way of, of what real people want. I mean, some, you know, again, you know, climbing Mount Everest is great, but it gets in the way of being, you know, a good father or, you know, being, being a, a good husband or a good wife or whatever. Um, sometimes the pursuits take you away from other concerns that you should be paying attention to. Yeah. I mean, I, this is a point my wife and I talk about a lot. I have a lot of peers in my sort of pundit world who look, I understand you're you're in a business you need to make money you need to get your name out there i i get all that i trust me but like there are some people who clearly travel around doing talks and and events and whatnot because they don't want to be home with their families and you see it a lot in my line of work and sometimes it's very very depressing to see it because it's 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 they're convincing themselves this is a good excuse for me to disappear forever you know and be on the road forever when in reality, you know, they're just running away from their moral and familial obligations. Last night, uh, my fiance and I watched uh, Roadrunner, the Anthony Bourdain documentary. Um, it was very good, but this is a man who um, ended up getting married, having a daughter, really wanted to be a good father, but also wanted to be on the road 250 days a year and wanted that more. It was plain and was, was, was anguished about that but not anguished enough to go home, you know, and, and hang out with his kid. And so these things really are in conflict. And, you know, one, you know, my, 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 um, my editor was saying, are you sure of the title of sweet spot? Like, and, <laughs> and, and in some way, I'm never sure of my titles, but, but in some way it captures the idea that for each of us, we have to find this proper balance. Um, see, I like that a lot. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a, I've written about this before, but you know, uh, the movie city slickers, there's that scene where, um, what's his name? Uh, um, curly. I can't, it, it, he's the famous old Western spaghetti Western guy. But anyway, he says basically life just boils down to this and he holds up one finger and Billy Crystal says, what's this, what's this one thing? And he says, that's what you got to decide for yourself. And that is just terrible life advice. Yeah. That's terrible life advice. Life is portfolio management, right? I mean, Lenin believed in one thing, 
But normal people, you have to figure out how to manage your career with your, if I, if I devoted myself 1000% solely to my wife, I would be a terrible father. We would lose the house because I wouldn't be able to work and she'd find me super creepy. Right. I mean, it's, it's the whole trick is to find the balance. So what is the balance? How do you like, is there a, is there a trick? Is there a, a, is an algorithm to figuring out what the balance is or is it just my personal inventory? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, I'm not giving life advice to anybody, but, but, but I think with the exception of echoing that bit of life advice, and that was my problem with uh, Zizek and Peterson, because, you know, they gave these quotes about suffering. And I say, I, I like these quotes. Um, and of course, they're capturing a long religious tradition, a political tradition. This has been known for, for a long time. But, and I, so I said, you know, these men are my brothers in, in that way. But I said, there's something a little bit floored about this, because life is not actually entirely about finding the biggest rock and rolling it up the biggest hill. Sometimes it's about, you know, drinking a cold drink on a hot day. And, you know, seeing a movie and, and, and getting, getting pleasure. And one of the interesting sort of psychological findings is you ask people, how meaningful is your life? And you ask people, how happy is your life? And these are two different questions. You get some people who say, my life's happy, but has no meaning. Some people say, my life's meaning, but, but isn't happy. But they correlate. So there's plenty of people who say very much and very much. And, and so, so you don't have to choose one, specialize and focus on it. You could, you could take different routes in your life. And a lot of people do. So uh, is there a methodological problem with all these happiness surveys and so far, and these meaning surveys? It seems to me that if you asked me how to dis- define happiness or meaning, I use words for a living. I could, I'd struggle at it. The idea of asking people in 180 different countries um, with various degrees of education, different cultural keys, you know, touchstones. Do you have meaning in your life? Do you have happiness in your life? Could it be that large numbers of people are just talking about different things? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's, I mean, there, there's a lot of reasons to doubt, um, to, to be cynical about the data. And when people talk about small differences, you know, seven versus 7.2, and they make a big thing about it, you don't know whether people are just have cultural differences and how happy they think, what they think happiness is and, um, and what they, uh, and, and, and even their self-perception, which might be wrong. I mean, maybe in some way you're living this rich life and, and you're smiling all the time and people love you and, and, but, but you say, I'm not that happy. And maybe you're just thinking of it in a different way. But, to defend all of these surveys, all these data, first thing, they tend to converge. So, so, you know, the happiness of a country is related to its suicide rate, to depression, to, um, to, and, and also to all sorts of things that kind of make sense for happiness. So, you know, when, when you hear that countries with high degrees of trust, uh, are happier, you say, yeah, that makes sense. That kind of fits in with, with what happiness is. So I think we should be skeptical about it, but, um, but these numbers are useful. And one way they're useful, by the way, is you're looking at individual changes. So maybe your seven doesn't mean the same thing as my seven. But if you're a seven, 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 and then COVID comes and you tell me you're a five, I should listen. Because you probably haven't changed your conception of happiness. You're saying for you, there's been a drop. Hey, this is a bit of a discursion, but I got you here. You're one of the English-speaking world's foremost experts on psychology stuff. Um, I have this theory about 
the COVID thing. I just want to pass by it. And you're free to defecate on it from a great height. That's fine. <laughs> but okay. um, uh, as listeners know, I, I brought this up a bunch of times. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of psychological literature out there about hidden, unseen, invisible threats scaring people. Um, ira- you know, and leading to sort of, you know, you, Jonathan Haidt writes about a lot of this. Uh, Kahneman has a lot of the stuff about this where these weird, not necessarily, there's sort of sub-rational triggers that cause us to change our positions on things based upon, you know, sort of a lizard brain response, for want of a better term. And so, like, I remember reading either in one of your books, I think maybe it was in one of your books, um, that just the, that smelling bad body odor can cause, from a stranger, can cause people to change their views on immigration. Um, And so, I have this theory that, you know, a lot of people in, in, in politics want to ascribe the various form manifestations of COVID freakout to political explanations. And I perfectly happy to concede politics plays a role both as a cause and an effect. And, but you have people being tied down with duct tape on planes you have the, the, the largest number of disruptive passengers on planes in, in, since they've kept the numbers. You have road rage incidents going up. A lot of these murders aren't like normal criminal murders. They're of people who know each other. Um, there's rampant maskophilia and maskophobia out there. Um, and so I just, I kind of have this suspicion that a lot of the, the, the thing that's really upstream here is a mass psychological phenomenon that manifests itself in different ways of how people freak out during an epidemic that, that there's something about disease that makes us switch to a different programming. Now ex- explain why I'm wrong or right or a little, a little of both. I think, I think, I think you're right. Um, just to go to the politics thing I think that can explain a lot of the extreme reactions, you know? So, so yeah, roughly Democrats are pro-mask, Republicans are less pro-mask and everything. And you, and you have this sort of subtle difference. And then it exaggerates and exaggerates and exaggerates. And then people, you know, are assaulting one another for either wearing masks or not wearing masks, depending on the situation. So much of what it is, is not, not a rational assessment of, of things, but, but tremendous in-group, out-group feeling. Um, and and um, so I think that that explains part of our sort of extreme irrationality of it. But I agree it's fueled by the fact that this is an epidemic. So a lot of people, when COVID happened, friends of mine have made this, this argument, it says, this is going to make us better people. And they drew the analogy with things like Hurricane Katrina and 9-11. So 9-11, for instance, brought people together. There's a, there's a common enemy. We're all going to become nicer. There's going to be communal loving and so on. But that's how some disasters work. It's not how epidemics work. And studies of the Spanish flu found that that just made us mean. It made us very, very cautious about interlopers, made us very in-groupy. Um, there's, you know, horrible stories of, of terrible behavior. And, you know, we're not, we're not being, um, being bombed by the Germans, uh, you know, and hiding in the underground in the Blitz and becoming one community together. We're sitting in our house ordering Uber Eats and being really worried about wearing masks. It's, it's some way I think the epidemic has brought out the worst in us because this is how we respond to illness. And if it was different, if it was a coordinated attack by Al-Qaeda or an earthquake, we would respond differently. 
Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. I mean, one of my complaints about the way the media covers a lot of this stuff is that there's something so narcissistic about American media that it thinks America is just, I mean, like I'm, I'm a big believer in American exceptionalism. Don't get me started, Mr. Canadian. But, um, the, um, there are people freaking out in a lot of other countries than the United States and the people who think, oh, it's sort of a parochial thing where they think, oh, look at these idiots only in America would people behave like this. And all you have to do is like, look at the, the riots in Australia and the protests in London. I mean, it's happening all over the place. I think that's right. I think there's some places where um, I'm going to get all Canadian on you and Canada doesn't have, it doesn't have Trump. It doesn't have the, the, the sharp two party dichotomy. So, so basically there's, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm in Ontario. We, we, the, the leaders here are conservative, but they're, you know, pro mask and reasonable about lockdowns and everything. And you can't tell by people's political party where they're going to stand on this. And that, diminishes things somewhat. So you're totally right. It's not just America where people are freaking out, but you can roughly predict the degree of freak out from the political system and how politicized this is. Um, you know, in, in the States, I know my guys wear masks. My guys keep our kids home from school. My guys are pro lockdown. Your guys do the opposite. Tell me your opinion on it. I'll know whether you're one of us or one of them. Other countries like Canada, it's not as clean. Yeah. I mean, David Hogg, the kid who survived the Florida shooting, he had a very on-point tweet where he said, look, I know I don't need to wear masks anymore, but he's going to school at Harvard. He's in Cambridge. He says, I don't want to, I don't want to walk around without a mask because I don't want people to think I'm a conservative. And, you know, make of that what you will. It is sort yes. of yes. like perfect on point. You know, it's like Crips and Bloods. Um, yes, and, and you, have, you have the comedy of people going for long hikes alone wearing masks. You, know, right. you can never be too safe. And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he's talked about this, but there's an, there's, there's an alternative reality where Trump, you know, who to his credit came out to vaccine, um, called it the Trump vaccine, obsessed about the importance of the vaccine. And then you have a flip where in this alternative reality, it's Republicans who are obsessed with the disease, desperate to get everybody vaccinated. And it's the liberals who are on the opposite side of the Democrats. And to me, that's not inconceivable. I think so much of this is just political accident. Yeah, no, I agree. If Trump had been reelected, I, I, there was enough anti-vax stuff already existing in the bloodstream on the left that you could have seen this go, maybe not completely this other way. I mean, you now have people on, I mean, like Dennis Prager is talk, hope, walking around hoping to get infected. This guy, Charlie Kirk, is saying, catch the freedom flu, fight tyranny. And it makes you want to like bust out Darwin Awards, you know, again. But anyway, um, so I, I got some more meta stuff for you here. Um, and I'm very tempted to go back through 10 years of questions I have for you, but that's unfair. Um, uh, but for starters, you know, you're writing a book that's trying to explain, at least in part, masochistic behavior. You are, as I mentioned up front, um, a very liberal Canadian academic, secular atheist guy whose instincts all come from the left side of things. And then you write books like Against Empathy um, and Just Babies and The Origins of Good and Evil. And now this book, which is all about the importance that struggle and hard work and inconvenience, rather than just having things handed to you, 
um, play and meaningful and, and rewarding life. And I, I, I'm wondering if, and this is the first of a two-part question, if there isn't a certain amount of masochism going on with you, <laughs> intellectual masochism, that you keep going where, you're, where the data and your intellectual integrity take you to conclusions that conflict with your own politics. I thought you were going to tell me that um, I'm actually conservative. Oh, that's the second me, part. We'll get to that okay. in a second. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll, get to, we'll get to that. Um, no, I'm, I'm... If I was holding a certain extreme political view, you're right. Some of my conclusions would be uncomfortable. But, you know, I'm, I, I think of my books as um, apolitical is too strong because I think they have implications. So... So take the empathy thing. I argue, just you know, the ten second summary that that feelings of empathy, putting yourself in another person's shoes, feeling what they feel, is fundamentally an unreliable way to do morality because empathy is so biased. But I talk about liberals and conservatives there, and I say that this is a critique of both liberals and conservatives because they both use empathy as a tool. You know, liberals will call attention to the victims of school shooting. Conservatives will call attention to people left defenseless because the government took away their guns. One will focus on a, on the mother. One will focus on the fetus or the young child. One, and you have these sort of yin yang things where they focus on different things. Um, and and regarding the suffering book, I don't think there's anything intrinsically against my political side to talk about importance and meaning and struggle as as part of a good life. So, um, so I don't see this as sort of as, as politically poisonous to my side as you might, but am I not thinking hard enough? No, no, no. I'm not saying you think plenty hard. I mean, I, I, I do think, and part of the problem with ascribing straight, clean, ideological valences to any of these things is that all of that's being mixed up. I mean, and churned around these days and you have lots of people on the right proposing things that five years ago would have been considered blatantly left-wing, you know, um, you know, you have JD Vance talking about expropriating the wealth of certain foundations and spending it on the working man. And, um, there's a new book out that was just reviewed in American conservative that, uh, argues that everyone was happier 800 years ago, um, in <laughs> yes, the 1200s, yes. you know, and there's a lot of weird stuff going on on the right. Um, that said, uh, there is this, classic conservative argument, you know, against welfare qua welfare, you know, we can argue about what welfare means in this context, but the sort of the classic conservative buy your own bootstraps, you know, uh, you know, it's the, that, that, uh, you can offer people a hand up, but not a handout that, that, that welfare is, is, is corrosive to human dignity and saps initiative and all of these kinds of, that's a sort of classic conservative arguments. And, you know, with a lot of asterisks and footnotes to it. And one of the upshots, if I were, you know, of your book is, well, there's a lot of truth to that. Now, that may not be an argument against this, you know, about paid parental leave or any of that kind of stuff. But as a sort of a directional point that, you know, rewarding work, you know, which is sort of a conservative mantra these days, um, uh, rewarding uh, that, that, that doing it yourself has more valuable than having someone do it for you is a fairly classically conservative kind of point of view. No, that's interesting. 
I think yes, but I also think there's strands of liberalism that also have it. I was a, I was listening to Noam Chomsky talk to Ezra Klein, and Chomsky comes from an anarchist, extreme left view. But he was talking about, um, about how productive work, how central that is to people. And now we don't do it for the money. We don't do it, we don't, we, you know, humans are not motivated by material goods. Humans have an instinct for freedom, for autonomy, for constructive work. And a lot of, a lot of people who support universal basic income, um, and that says in both the left and the right, would say, would say to people, say, well, then people just kind of sit on their ass and do nothing. We'll say, no, no, it's in our nature to find, uh, to, to want to do things, to try to make a difference. So I see your point, but I, just, I see this position as cross-cutting uh, liberals and conservatives, maybe in some interesting ways. Um, I, I want to come back to that in a second, but it, it, just another question that popped in my head that you're a great person to answer that ask this stuff. One of the smarter critiques of video games and playing video games is that um, they are getting really, really good at mimicking the feelings of real success. And some would are, you know, defenders would say it is real success. And there are even people who go professional playing video games and whatnot. But there are a lot of people who play video games. Let's just say there are some. I'm going to forget a lot, right? I don't want to get in arguments with people. There are some people who can play a video game for eight hours in a day or 12 hours in the day. And at the end of the day, they, uh, they unlock four new levels and they have these achievements and they, you know, they get this high score that is like respected by their friends and whatnot. And at the end of the day, they feel like they accomplished something real and good. Did they? No. I mean, they, they, that's, that's, I'll, I'll answer the question. You, that you, there's a hard question in there, but the easy question is no, they have not. The, the harder question is, should, should we worry? Yeah, well, that was going to be my follow-up, I, you know, but I didn't know where you were going to go. Should we, so should we worry? I think that's a great question, actually. Um, where people sometimes go with violent video games, because it connects to some of these in my book, is do these make us more violent? And the answer is, oh, almost certainly not. Um, I, I don't want to quote the, the guy, the, the, um, the, the CEO of Netflix, but he said the point exactly right, that as video games grew far more violent, uh, America grew far less violent. So I'm not saying video games made us nicer, but the idea that video games cause violence is very little empirical support. Could they get to be so good that they're a substitute for real accomplishment and real uh, making a real difference and then add to it uh, virtual reality? as a way to sort of enhance it. I don't think we're there yet. And I think right now worrying about video games, maybe we should, is similar to worrying about novels where you could also immerse yourself and sort of live an alternative life in your imagination. But it doesn't strike me as a crazy view that this could be a problem in the future that people could, you know, maybe aided by, by marijuana and a comfortable sofa, um, live a life where they're basically living a Nozick's experience machine you know, experiencing pleasure without, and, and, and the feeling of accomplishment without actual accomplishment. I don't think that's a silly concern. I think I, I would take that seriously. I saw somewhere, maybe it was Twitter, a professor said that she's described the Nozick feeling machine or experience machine to her class for 20 years and then asks who thinks it's a, who has any problems with it or something like that. And she said for the first time in her teaching career, no one in the class, except for one person, had it, said they wouldn't be perfectly happy just going into the machine. And she had to kind of on the fly tear up her 
teaching plan because she never ran into that before. And that, that scares me. You know, my, my colleague, David French was recently meeting with, he was talking, talking about this on another podcast. He met with a bunch of buddies from Iraq and one of the guys brought his presence, those Oculus virtual reality glasses. And he was saying, man, they're not quite there yet, but in a couple gener technological generations from now, they're going to get these things so good that some people are going to go in and never leave. And I find it in myself sometimes. I play a really dumb game on my iPad or my iPhone um, while I listen to podcasts and or the news or whatever. And every now and then I have to remind myself, wait, I got a deadline coming up. This isn't work. But the way they stagger all of these rewards and these levels of accomplishment in the game, it makes you feel like, and there's a clock on it. If I don't finish this stuff, I'm not going to get these rewards. And then you feel like it gives you this little weird sense of accomplishment. And there's and I feel like a sucker every now and then because of it. But it's a way for me with my ADD to get through other things that I'm listening to. So I rationalize it. But I could see this being a real problem in the years ahead. You know, this is another quote from the Netflix guy, which just stuck with me. He was in an interview. He was asked about Netflix competition. And he says, we don't compete with Amazon. We don't compete with Hulu. We compete with sleep. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and, and building from this, I think video games, also social media, um, don't compete with uh with with other other corporations they compete with life you know um my call for duty game my uh my beat saber and my oculus uh tetris are all trying to to keep me away from being <laughs> a father and a spouse and a scholar you know and and um and the technology is getting better and better you know i i this isn't the concern you raise but i am astonished how i could pick up my phone go to Facebook, start scrolling. And then 45 minutes will go by as if I'm in a trance because Facebook knows exactly the little movies I like and exactly, and it just, it just, time goes by. And um, I'm not in favor of regulating all these things. I think there are problems with that, but, but I think we're right to worry. Um, all right, so the second part of the question where you thought, where you thought I was going. Um, so one of my big intellectual influences was Irving Kristol. And, um, and Irving was a complex guy, complex thought, wasn't right about everything, yada, yada, yada. But the original neoconservatism was not about foreign policy. That's the second thing. The original neocons were people like Nat Glazer at Harvard and Daniel Bell and Irving Kristol and James Q. Wilson, who were these sort of uh, either, either socialists or just because of classic New Deal or Great Society liberals who um, broke with those projects because essentially the data, they follow the data. And there was a sort of the, the, the neoconservative, you know, bumper sticker is, you know, a liberal mug by reality. Um, um, and, um, William F. Buckley, when he was asked what was the major contribution of, of the neocons to the conservative movement, his argument was uh, prior to the neocons, conservatives were essentially Aristotelian in their argumentation. And the neocons brought the language of sociology into conservative intellectual circles. Now, I'm skipping over a lot of things and all of that, but it seems to me that you and Jonathan Haidt and a few others um, you guys are rediscovering a lot of arguments, are confirming the way the early neocons did. Um, you are confirming a lot of conservative arguments about 
the crooked timber of humanity, um, the fallen nature of, 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 of man, the, the laws of unintended consequences, the, the bullshittery of the blank slate. And um, there are a lot of conservative conclusions one can draw from all of that stuff. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to get you, I mean, in, in Canada, a lynching is, is that they don't let you into the Tim Hortons, but you know, uh, I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but, um, isn't there something a little ne- neo-realist or neo something in, in, in that kind of work? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, you wrote a book about how empathy can steer you wrong. That is not a classically liberal position. I think we can, we can. Not classical liberalism. I mean, like modern twentieth yes. yeah. century liberal. Yeah, um, I think it could be, and maybe it should be. But you're right. You're right. You you asked before if I was if, if there's a masochistic drive here, and I could kind of sincerely tell you um, there isn't. But sometimes my books have made people angry at me, and I don't welcome that. I I love. I, I have many friends I disagree with about certainly about empathy. And 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 I love productive arguments. But when you get into politics, as as you well know people freak out a bit and, and I don't enjoy the ugliness of people who feel that, that I have, uh, you know, betrayed them in some way. So, so take these ideas as an empirical question. It's not a purely empirical question, but it's partially empirical. What are the ideal circumstances for human flourishing? And, um, and, you know, in, under what sort of societies do people say they're happy, say they have a life of meaning, seem to produce stuff and so on. And, to the extent, I, I think that some of the answer favors conservatives, conservative values. Um, in particular, it seems to be true that we benefit from, you know, family, community, some aspects of religion, that these are actually positive things to, to, for which to flourish. And to the extent that that's conservative, then conservatives get points for that. I, I, I wouldn't want to duck that. Um, the idea that I know some people have of a cosmopolitan person who's entirely unrooted from, from any sort of obligations, um, the idea of even pure utilitarianism and, you know, I like Peter Singer a lot, I have a lot of respect for him, but I think that to some extent this doesn't mesh well with our evolved natures. And then, and, and, and the idea of a blank slate to the extent that that's a liberal view, I don't think it has to be, but to the extent it is should go. And Paige Harden, and maybe somebody you should do, who you enjoy talking with, has written a book reconciling or trying to reconcile facts from behavioral genetics with the idea of an egalitarian society, noting that if you want an egalitarian society, you, um, you can't pretend that everybody is, is exactly equal in their abilities and propensities. And Freddie DeBoer, another liberal, has made that argument. So it's a long-winded response, but I, but I think that that yeah, empirical studies suggest, and studies of happiness and flourishing suggest some things conservatives say are correct. Um, it was very well done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I still get into the Tim Hortons? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to poke you with a stick. Um, it's a, I, you wrote a piece a long time, about 2005 or something, in the Atlantic asking, it was God an accident, right? And... Um, and part of your argument, which I think is widely held these days, and certainly at least in certain sort of ev- people who are interested in evolutionary psychology and biology and all that kind of stuff, that basically there was some evolutionary advantage in religious belief of some kind. And um, even Darwin talks about this, about the tribe that has 
more unity and religious unity is sort of implicit in this concept, not mandatory, but it's, it's certainly roped in would give it an advantage over a group of, I mean, of, of John Galtz, right. You know, who refused to work together. And, um, so I, I guess the question I have for you is what, you know, one of the conservative philosophers in our, on our, not maybe not on Mount Rushmore, but sort of on the extended Mount Rushmore list would be, uh, uh Eric Vigellen, who argued against immunitizing the eschaton, which is this argument about don't take things reserved for the hereafter and bring them down to here and now and try to create utopian societies here on earth because they always lead to evil. And, um, um, is there a danger in taking that religious instinct and applying it to daily, th- you know, prosaic real life things? Should, I mean, isn't one of the advantages of traditional Judeo-Christian notions of religion is that uh, it promises you the payoff after you die rather than saying you can actually impose it or bring it on in, in, in this life. Um, because whenever part of his argument, part of my argument, Michael Burley's make this argument, Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, these were essentially political religions and they tried to ha- cultivate that scent, that religious instinct in the here and now. And it led to terrible things. I'm just kind of wondering, because there's an argument among a lot of people that liberal, for a lot of people, liberalism has become a religion. Nationalism kind of operates as a religion. Is there a way to have that religious and cultivate that religious instinct in the prosaic world of public policy and everyday life that won't get into trouble? Yikes. That's a good question. (laughs) Um, uh, And I'm just going to, I'm going to duck it and say, I I think that um, I'm very much pro-rationality. And, and one of the advantages of rationality and making rational decisions in the public sphere is that it's uh, ecumenical. It's, it's just, you know, regardless of your faith or lack of faith, you could appeal to arguments and data. But my arguments are sort of sort of moral and political about, about not letting um, religious values and virtues extend too far into our public sphere. But let me push back on you in, on two ways. Um, one thing is you're exactly right that many psychologists and evolutionary theorists see religion as to some extent a biological adaptation. And some of them see it exactly as, as Darwin put it, as you put it, in terms of group selection. I'm actually quite skeptical. I think for one thing, you know, as you know, group selectionist arguments run into some serious problems. Um, for another, I think a lot of religion could be explained as, ac- as an accident. And this doesn't mean to derogate religion. And I think in the same sense, um, you know, a lot of morality is, is an accident too, but it, it isn't a direct adaptation. It's a byproduct of different ways we think. So for instance, we tend to naturally think of bodies and souls separately, and that gives rise to certain religious beliefs of life after death and, um, and, 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 and the like. Um, so I think the evolutionary story is a bit, a bit more complicated. I think the truth of the evolutionary story is to some extent orthogonal to the questions which people are really interested in, which is, is there a God and what does God want and so on? Because even if there is a God, we need an an explanation for why we believe in one. But I'll use this to segue back to your question about, um, about my conservatism, which is according to Jonah Goldberg, I am not. Because one of the criteria you laid out for being conservative in a discussion I listened to, a very interesting discussion, was a sort of reverence for religion. I think reverence was 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 well, certainly I respect, but yeah, let's use yeah. reverence. So that's fine. 
and and well, a lot will turn on this because you know, I I love too many people who are religious to have you know to to to, to scorn it, and I appreciate that religion might have a positive, beneficial role. It may even be some aspects of religion fairly indispensable for uh, a good society. But I don't have that sort of reverence or, or I don't have a belief in the transcendent or the spiritual in the same sense. So, And you once said, if I have you right, that that was sort of a necessary ingredient for conservatism. Yeah, well, it's certainly in the con- that was in the context of Ayn Rand and why yes. Buckley thought yes. she went too and, far. And, 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 and God, no, I'm no, no Randian. You so. are not a Randian. <laughs> I, I, will, I will absolve you of, of any yes, such yes. calumnies. So... You know, I, I want to get back to the book, which is wonderful. And I really, you know, I, I don't want to get in trouble with your publicist, but Just Babies is a fantastic book. Um, and I always, oh, whenever, I, whenever I talk about it um, in public, I always have to promise people that no babies were harmed in the, con- <laughs> in, the in the work of that book. Um, but to me, it was for a conservative, you know, because there, there's this, there's this caricature of conservatives that, um, uh, that, we don't um, acknowledge like the the role of, of, of the, the sort of the the scientific case for nature over nurture, right? You know that that and um, it was extremely helpful to me, and also just a fun read to see how much pre-wiring came in. Um, uh, I know you guys argue about what the right metaphor is, wiring, hardwired, I, I'm not, you know, whatever, fine. But I, I do have a question for you that is, I, I want to be delicate about this, that I learned, one of the things I learned from that book was that babies have, even that babies cry in accents, which I think is fascinating. Um, and, um, and so if, if you know, if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you probably know that one of my big things is I'm very pro bourgeois values. And for some of the reasons you lay out in this book, you know, that hard work, delayed gratification, thrift, these things are the path to a prosperous, good life for all people, regardless of faith, creed, color, all that kind of stuff. Right. And I got, it was interesting. I was at an event where we were talking about, uh, Charles Murray's uh, book human differences and there was a guy who came in i don't want to get anybody in any trouble or anything like that, but there was a it was a academic critic who and they had a back and forth about it and at dinner i asked a question about how sort of going in part on your stuff about how um accents or the way people talk is sometimes a greater trigger of that sense of stranger than visual stuff that maybe one way we could work on assimilation and all these kinds of things is simply teaching a standard form of English for everybody. And that would, you know, help. And there, you know, and it's funny, there's this thing about, you know, about when you listen to say a a black person from Great Britain speak, there's things that happen to in your brain where you just see them as somewhat different than, and, and so anyway, my point is, it seems to me there's a lot, the, one of the greatest wellsprings of involuntary racism and bigotry in American life has to do with the way people speak, whether it's Southern accents, whether it's black English, whether it's Hispanic accents, whatever. And when I asked this question, I got the, the clear Im- impression 
that I had stepped on something really controversial in academia and that I shouldn't have asked the question and it was kind of outrageous. And I, so I'm, I'm very nervous about asking this again, but is there some, first of all, what do you think of the, the general thesis? And second of all, is there something that is profoundly, is this a third rail that I'm unaware of, or is this just, I caught someone off guard or something? No, I ne I never thought, um, language biases would be such a third rail. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Charles Marwin. I thought, okay, here, here, here we no, go. No, I'm not going to get into but, all that. But, you know. but, but no, um, um, Katie Kinsler, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, has a wonderful book. I'm blanking on the title, but it's all about this. Highly recommended. And, um, and, and she's a developmental psychologist, and she's done a lot of the work here. And the results are really striking. You take kids, and they've done this in the United States, done it in France, they've done it all over the world. Um, and a very simple study. You take a kid, and there's two people in front of the kid, and they each offer a toy. Who does the kid reach for? There's two people in front of the kid. The kid needs help. Who does the kid ask? There's two people in front of the kid. The kid has a present, has to give it to one. And so a lot of the studies have in front of the kid, there's, the kid's white, say, a black person and a white person. At the youngest ages, first three, four years, like, kids don't care. They're, they're, they're not literally colorblind. They can tell the difference, but they just don't care. The idea of categorizing people on the basis of race is just isn't set up for them yet. It doesn't seem to be a natural bias. but one person speaks English, one person speaks French. They interact, the English speaking kids interact with the English person, the French speaking kids with the French person. Okay, well, that's not so surprising because you can communicate with the person. Even an accent, this is kids are the most human bias we have, the original bias is against accents. And it just, it just totally uh, matters so much to kids. You, you take, even at older kids, you take a white five year old. And they have to choose to interact with a black uh, person who speaks without an accent or um, a white person who speaks with an accent. They go for the black person. Accent trumps race. And the idea here is we are, we are and you've talked about this a lot, we are very much prone to split the world up, it, it, us versus them. And maybe even an evolved cue is how people talk. So over our evolutionary history, we may not have met people who look that different, that requires a lot of geographical dispersion and travel. Maybe everybody will kind of look the same. But as soon as you get communities together, they speak differently. And we really twig on to that. So I think, I think your diagnosis of the problem is exactly right. You talk differently from me, boom, I think you're, I think you're different. I'm not sure what the solution is. My sense is people find themselves in different communities. Communities will develop accents if there's any isolation at all. You know, um, somebody who's better at this could probably tell where you, where you're from pretty easily based on how you're talking where I'm from. And, and, you know, neither of us is from Alabama or Jamaica, you know? So, and I think accents just emerge sort of, um, naturally through how people interact with. So, so it is going to be a cue for how we split each other apart. And I'm not sure as much you could do about it. Yeah. But, but that's all really interesting. My only point is, well, but as I said, you know, in my example, when you, when, when you hear Idris Ilba talk in his, you know, native British accent, it, it just, it, it's, it triggers something different, you know, it's then when you hear him talk as Stringer Bell, let's say, and, yes, yes. um, and, um, and I, and I just want to be clear, you know, my motivations are here, I, I think are really good, but it's, are, are, are really, you know, sort of ecumenical and, and designed to you know, fight a source of bigotry. But 
it just seems to me it's it's not so. So my point is, it's not so much that you're going to get rid of accents, qua accents, or anything like that. But you, but that the there's a trigger that comes with um, certain. You know, let's put it this way: the story of Pygmalion sort of gets to this, right? Which is that there's a class thing that pings when you hear certain, you know, when you hear the Cockney accent in 19th century Britain. And if I were raising, you know, if I were African-American and I were raising my kids, you know, I'd want them to go to school, all those bourgeois value things. But one thing I would really emphasize for their success is speaking more like John McWhorter, right? Even if they might switch dialects when they're with their friends, you know, at the playground versus when they're applying for a job. But it just seems to me if you're looking for low hanging fruit for ways to sort of fix some of these institutional bias problems, you're not going to quote unquote fix skin color. And what I learned from your book is that skin color is not nearly as sort of triggering as these other things, which are eminently fixable. Anyway, it's just something I think about. And I always wondered if I stepped on something when I brought it up, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. We're, we're not when 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 we go through the world, all of us, you know, regardless of how biased we think we are or not, we we categorize people, and one way we do it is by skin color. But like you say, it's not the it's not the only way, nor is it the main way. Um, you know, Paul Rosen points out that you find biases where you ask people, you show people like a a white person and a black person applying for the same job, you find biases. You could measure them in all sorts of ways, but you really find biases if you put somebody in a suit versus a hoodie. And you probably really find biases if somebody talks like, you know, Idris Elba, you know, or Stringer Bell, because this, these modes of talking capture from where you're from, you know, a Southern accent I've been told by friends of mine, you know, uh, is, 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 you know, white friends of mine could be a true handicap in the world because, you know, they think you're from Dukes of Hazard. And, and it's a kind of a bias, which is almost socially acceptable. So you, you're right. There are certain aspects uh, which trigger people, which nothing you do about it, um, how attractive you are, your skin color and so on. Then there's other things that, that, that um, people resonate to that are under your control to some extent. And accent and language is one of them. So I'm not, I don't think this is taboo and it seems sort of sensible to me. Okay. So, uh, I just don't think, I kind of feel getting back to your book. I don't think we completely answered the question of why do people like scary movies? You know, why do people like to eat spicy food? I hate scary movies, love spicy food. Yep. Yep. You're for all of this. Um, and one of the interesting things is I think benign masochism. Now we're talking about pleasure and suffering and pleasure is a fun topic. And, and, um, I think everybody has it. I've never encountered somebody who I didn't give them the list. Don't go ping on something. So for you, it's spicy foods. Um, for other people, it's horror movies. Some people like saunas, rigorous massages, hardcore exercise, some mix of the two. Interestingly, um, we don't know why some people are one and some people are another. There's, there's no predictions to be made here. We just, the science is kind of silent on, on why you don't like horror movies and why sometimes I do. Um, there's all reasons for our appetites for these things. And to zoom in on horror movies, this is one thing I am tempted to think is a biological adaptation, which is the idea here is that our minds are naturally drawn to worst case scenarios because there's a utility to that. It's a lot of fun for me to fantasize about winning an award, but the truth is if I won an award, I'll know what to do. Thank you and be happy. But 
Um, but so what your mind goes, and in fact, daydreams often go this way, they're negative ones are more common than positive ones, is what'll happen if I come back home and my family's left me? What'll happen, you know, when somebody I love dies? I lose my job. Um, you know, we're talking about language and I didn't realize it is taboo and, you know, and my career is over. You know, <laughs> what, you, 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 you focus on worst cases. And what horror movies and tragedies often are, are vivid, realistic, memorable, convincing depictions of worst case scenarios. And my favorite example here is zombie movies and zombie TV shows. So, you know, there's a philosopher who made fun of this once. He said, yeah, like we need to prepare for the zombie apocalypse. But that misses the point. Zombie films are not about risk of being attacked by the undead. What they are is creative renderings of what it would be like to, um, to be in a world where there's no government and no police. The real dangers is in, in like The Walking Dead aren't zombies, they're people. And so we're drawn, just like your eyes would be drawn to somebody holding a bloody axe, you know, standing next to you. We're drawn to these worst case scenarios because we focus on them and try to figure out how to solve them. Yeah, I mean, the, the zombie thing is a great example. Um, I love zombie apocalypse movies um, and TV shows, and I am riding out The Walking Dead and all of its sub franchises to the bitter end like Slim Pickens on an ICBM. Um, and <laughs> I, I gave up around season 14 or whatever. Yeah, it, just, it was just, I'm gonna see it through, but um, uh, no, there was this great line in like I think the third or fourth season where of Walking Dead, where the the sort of the mantra is you're either the butcher or you're the cattle, right? And it's this way of sort of reducing the the real threat to the guys in the Walking Dead or other people, right? It's and 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 one of the things I really like about where the Walking Dead is is now going, even though a lot of it's gotten really bad and dumb, is they're now basically in the dark ages or medieval times, right? Now they have little city-states and polises, and they're starting to, trying to do trade. And the way to think about the zombies is really, that's just nature, right? That's, they're, a, they're, they're an anthropomorphization of disease and war and, 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 um, and the elements and all of the things that make living hard. And, and so now they discover walls and blacksmithing and all that kind of, I like that sort of recreation kind of thing. That's right. And in, in Walking Dead, the zombies are like a cliff you could fall off of or pushed off of. But, but you know, zombies are inherently the most boring of creatures because they're no, no brains. But, um, and The Walking Dead from its inception is about people and, and, and the dangers of people. And, um, you know, I think, I think we're drawn to these sort of dystopias because, you know, maybe we're just, you know, <laughs> one bad month away from ending up in one and focuses us well as the author of suicide of the west i kind of agree but um yes. <laughs> but um no one of my favorite tropes of almost all apocalyptic movies is um the the negans among us negan is this bad guy in the walking dead but you can even do like the that kevin costner movie the postman or whatever it was called and um where the the warlord in that was a xerox repairman or something like that and and this uh, and I think there, this sort of gets a little bit to the Eichmann kind of stuff, right? That there are, I think, one of the things, one of the things a lot of people like about this kind of fiction is the daydreaming allows them to imagine themselves in with a different status, and so it's a little like the reincarnation phase from the, you know craze from the nineteen seventies, where everybody thought 
in a past life they were a princess or a king or a warlord. No one ever said, oh, yeah, I was a miserable serf who died in my 20s and, you know, on, in the shtetl or whatever. Um, they always thought they were these important people. But I think there are a lot of people who it's this sort of classic shock the bourgeoisie kind of desire to imagine tearing everything down. And what would I be in this other, you know, when the thin veneer of civilization is stripped away, I'd be one of the warlords or I would be the one who survived. I like that. I, I have the opposite feeling, which is honestly, I feel free to confess this, but if there's an apocalypse, um, I don't think the world needs an experimental psychologist who <laughs> writes popular books. And those is my, my entire skill set. Um, by the way, that appetite you're talking about, it's interesting. I never thought of it in the context of, um, of dystopias, but I think of it a lot in the context of, of literature or movies for children. So, you know, Harry Potter is the perfect example. Every kid at a certain age wants to believe that he or she is some, is, isn't just some schmo with their very disappointing parents and their disappointing neighborhood, but is special. And then one day someone's going to knock on a door and say, these aren't your parents. You're from royalty. You're not a muggle. You're a, you're a witch. You're, you have powers. You are going to save the world. And it's such a a, a re powerful fantasy. And it's interesting to emerge thinking, yeah, I'm just an everyday schmo here. Nobody respects me much, but come the apocalypse, they'll be sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right about kids literature. I mean, I, hadn't, I mean, it's, it's Matilda, it's in time bandits. It's in, you know, so time many things. Bandits. Hey, hey, don't what, mock where do, you get the, where, do you, where do you get these references there? <laughs> there's, a, there's such a randomness to them. Well, that's 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 the life I have chosen. Um, I, I, I like Time Bandits. That's fine. Time Bandits was a fantastic movie. Um, but you know, on this 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 you know hidden nature thing, this kind of gets back to the Colonel Nicholson thing. Um, there are if you know, and I'm trying to avoid a sort of an argument at the Hitlerum kind of thing and all that kind of stuff. But five years ago. Six years ago, if you had told me that, I don't know, I'll pick an easy case because he's not a friend and, and my basic attitude is to hell with him. But if you told me people like John Eastman, this guy who wrote the memo, right, would have been involved essentially in an attempted coup. I said, you're nuts. You know, this is just, you know, first of all, he's a conservative, he's a federal society guy, he's a constitutional, no way, right? And the number of people you know, or if you told me that Rudy Giuliani would be calling for trials by trial by combat to decide the, the presidential election, I would have said, I mean, how much has he had to drink that day? But basically I would have said, you're crazy, you know, and this tendency among a lot of people who are a surprise to me how they went in the last five years, um, uh, it's kind of shaken, you know, I, I no longer have the the adamant it can't happen here kind of position, even though I kind of, I've always argued that it kind of did under Woodrow Wilson, but that's another story. Um, uh, but as a psychologist, I mean, we don't have to get too deep in the politics of it, but does the, do the last five years suggest to you that there is, you know, it's sort of like if you had some sort of war of the world's broadcast that convinced enough people that there was a, actually was a zombie apocalypse, there are a bunch of people who would do bad things in the snap of a, you know, the second they were convinced that, okay, it's go time, it's real, right? But there are a bunch of people who wouldn't. Um, is there something, that, has the last five years demonstrated anything to you about how more people are susceptible to these kinds of triggers than, than 
than you once thought? Or is it just me who's the babe in the wood, Nafe, who was surprised by all of this? There's two somewhat opposing ways to think about this. I think, but they're compatible, which is I've, I'm, I'm interested in human nature and universals in human nature. I'm professionally interested in what we have in common and particularly for morality. And I argue we have a moral sense and moral core. And the opposition in this is people talking to power to situation. You know, that, that, that no, there's not a basic goodness. There's not a basic, you know, evil. There's no, basically we are whatever the situation calls us to be. And the last five years have been good time for their side. And <laughs> that, you know, um, the people's behavior, you know, during Trump, post-Trump, uh, maybe pre-Trump, um, seems to suggest that for many people, the situation changed. And then, wow, they found themselves, yeah, I'm going to engineer a coup. Never thought of it, but I guess that's what people, that's what the cool kids are doing these days. So this is one way to see it. But another way to see it, and now I'm sort of less of a psychologist and just make guy making observations, is that we don't know what people will do until they're put to the test sometimes. I don't think I would write, I would be the kind of person to write the Eastman memo. I don't think I'd be the kind of person to write the torture memos from, from way back. But you don't know. No one's asked. No one's put me, I haven't been put in a Milgram experiment and asked to kill some guy in the next room. And, um, and most of us go through lives untested in these ways. And, um, and I think these tests have revealed some interesting things about, about human nature and, um, and maybe some disquieting things, you know, for, for somebody like me who wants to argue for sort of a fundamental goodness and fairness and, and nobility, um, it's been a rough few years. But, but, and I don't want to, I, I don't want to overpraise you. You could edit this out if you want, but, <laughs> but this, but other people have been put to the test. And I think you're know, thinking very, particularly people in the conservative movement like you who did not go along with Trump and often paid a personal professional price for that. And so, you know, that's a bit of evidence for the, for the goodness side of things that people do have integrity. The situation is not all powerful. Uh, well, thank you for that. We don't need to dwell on that. Um, but I think you're, I mean, the, the, the big takeaway I get from, you know, this book, from the empathy book, um, and really the just babies book is that, um, there is a thing called human nature, right? Um, but it's complicated <laughs> and, um, and you can't reduce it to a set of rules that apply equally to everybody in every given circumstance. And, um, it's sort of like I had Mike Duncan on here to talk about, uh, history stuff in his new book. And I asked him what his theory of history was. He's this history podcaster guy. And, um, and he had this very weird definition where he said, history is basically a bunch of apes walking through a new field and they, they <laughs> chart a, they chart a path through it and then other apes walk along that same path. But there's sort of, I guess the upside of the, 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 the upshot of his metaphor was that there's a lot of contingency and accident and happenstance to history, but what people do actually matters. And it feels to me that, that part of your point about human nature is that you can draw general rules uh, are ge general rules of thumb with while acknowledging at the same time that it's not going to be the same for everybody. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I think that is fair. I think people like uh, Joe Henrich have pointed out how you could have an enduring human nature, but different cultures push it in different ways. We see this both sort of in extremes, life as a hunter-gatherer versus life now, but also in, you know, in, in seemingly subtle shifts like 2010 versus 2020. And I think one way to think of it is, is we've evolved this highly articulated, structured, really complicated human nature for morality, for pleasure, for desires. Um, as com- Our brains are as complicated as the rest of our bodies in terms of intricacy and design. But then culture shifted in different ways. So you take you know, your empathy, your, your moral sense, your desire to do good could involve you devoting your life to stopping fixing world hunger, or could you could have you blowing up black churches because you feel this is in the end the right thing to do. Um, it's not like the bad, bad people are often as motivated by moral concerns as good people. Our desire for suffering and for meaning and for struggle, you know, it could get you a really good person and it could get you a really bad person. And, and um, culture directs it, um, randomness directs it, your own personal goulash of genes and environment play it in but yeah you could have a rich human nature gets manifested in different ways so i i i do really don't want to abuse your time but this sort of leads to a good final point or question uh i'm a big believer in institutions i think that institutions are in many ways the only thing that really really matter for a society in terms of its long-term success um uh, you know, everyone can take out their bingo cards. You know, Yuval Levin makes this um, argument that successful institutions are about molding character. Um, one of the problems we have today is that people are using institutions as platforms to perform upon rather than things that they give over themselves to for the good of the institution. And it seems to me that one of, you know, sort of getting back to the, some of the themes in your in your book, um, the best, the most successful institutions tend to actually ask a lot of people. They ask, you know, the Marines are more popular than any other branch of the military in part because they ask the most from people. And once you make that decision that you want to live that life, you want to fully commit to it and the Marines are their way to go. I think this explains some of the psychology of people who convert to Catholicism or I know some people who've, you know, uh, become very sincere conservative Jews because when they converted, you know, because they, once you make the switch, you want to go all in kind of thing. And one of the things that I think is really important about this point is that to have successful institutions, they need to be sticky. So they need to, they need to ask something real of you that asks you to give over, make a major commitment of yourself to, and they need to be to some degree undemocratic. Um, because you know, you you can't put everything up for a vote and keep a mission for an institution, but it's these institutions that keep us from doing the John Eastman memo, right? Or that's what they're supposed, that's one of the things they're supposed to do. Right. And and if, if all the churches and all the schools were acting properly and fulfilling their institutions and didn't have mission creep, we'd be in a much better place than we were today. Is there, is there a, a way to think about this sort of idea of trying to have a meaningful life? Um, and make a meaningful contribution? Is there a way to it, to fit it into this vision about how institutions need to sort of step up and, and have a renewed sense of purpose? Because very difficult to do any of this stuff as an atomized individual. You need to do it through marriage, through church, through work, through teams, through whatever. 
Is there a lesson here, not for the individual, but for the institutions that are trying to sculpt the individual? Yeah, I think I, I talk about institutions in my Just Babies book in another context, which is that sometimes it's hard to be good. Like, you know, you, maybe you want to be unbiased when selecting, uh, you know, an intern or something. But there's a natural tendency to favor attractive people, people from your own background and everything. So what you often do is you kind of offload it to to an institution that that makes choices that your better self would agree to, you know, and that could include everything from, you know, not take totally stripping away all identifying information to quotas, depending on your philosophy. But, but in some way, just saying, I'm going to try really hard to be fair, doesn't do it. If your kid, somebody you love applies to you, you say, don't worry, I'll be unbiased. You can't be. So this is in some way, institutions offload uh, some of the decisions. And when they're good institutions, they do it well. In the context of this discussion of suffering and everything, I think it's it's true. It's one of the the paradoxes that keeps showing up that the religions, the companies, the jobs that ask very little of you, nobody wants them. Nobody, um, you know, uh, uh, the religions that are extremely mellow and demand very little, people don't convert. And when they do convert, they just drop out. It doesn't matter. While it's the harder core religions that sometimes get a lot of traction. Uh, the insight here, I, I'm not going to remember his exact words, but in my book, I quote Orwell, who did a book review of Mein Kampf. And, he's, and he says, let me tell you what Hitler got right. So Hitler points out that capitalism and socialism says, we can give you an easy life. We can give you comfort and safety. And Hitler says, I got something else for you. I got danger and death. How do you want that? And people say, hell yes. Particularly if they're young. And so, yeah, so good institutions do this. And, you know, there's a lot of institutions you could think of, you know, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, sports, sports when done right, fits in all of the things you're talking about. They're not, they're not democratic. They have hierarchical structure. They really value accomplishment. Um, and yeah, the right kind of institutions could, could cause the conditions that we want that maximize human flourishing, the right sort of institutions could really help. All right. Um, I can do this all day. Um, next time we should probably do it over cigars, but, um, Paul Bloom, the book is the sweet spot, the pleasures of suffering and the search for meaning. Thanks so much for finally doing this. I've told you for a long time, we didn't have to talk much about politics. I know we did a little, but next time we don't have to do it at all. Thank you again for doing this. This was terrific. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so Professor Bloom has left the studio. Um, I um, I hope people enjoyed that as much as I did. I I'm a big fan of his. I think that kind of it came through that I was sort of fanboying or standing or whatever you're supposed to say these days um, a little bit. But um, I think we covered a lot of ground, and um, I wish he had um, taken the immunitize the eschaton bait a little more. But what are you going to do? Um, so uh, we got a just a bunch of stuff lined up before as we head as we start barreling towards Thanksgiving. Um, very exciting stuff coming. And um, uh, I feel like there's something else I'm supposed to be telling you, but I'm so spent from this conversation. I can't remember what it is. So um, all I'll say is please come on by the dispatch. Please check out our wares um, and, uh, and become a member of the dispatch community. And let us know what you thought about this one. I'm, 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 I'm objectively and subjectively uh, very curious. 
And with that, uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is just a podcast. 